you know, one misconception I think people have about fast runners is that, oh, you know, we're all skinny. We, you know, we, you know, we're kind of weakling, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually given, given our size, most very fast runners actually can produce a lot of force mm-hmm. given their size. Right. Now that doesn't mean they're going to walk into the weight room, clear out the bench and then, you know, crush 450 pounds. Right. That's not the same. That's like pure power. I mean, not, not all of us. I mean, some of us. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey the Travel Planner. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. Here in Decatur, Georgia, because as we have done a few times, we're coming to you from Patrick's house. That's right. <laughs> right on. Very good. Thanks for having us here, Patrick. I appreciate it. You're staying home from work today because you are watching the Tour de France. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's it. 100% accurate. <laughs> and by 100% accurate, I mean not quite. You mean, you mean not at all accurate? Yes. You mean 0%. Yeah, okay. Correct. Um, the Tour de France, of course, continuing on. Everybody absolutely loved our Ask Patrick about the Tour or Ask George or have Patrick ask a question about the Tour, whatever you want to call the segment that we did last week. Uh, and so we're going to open with that this week. The Tour de France, a week old now. We, we've gotten through the sometimes hectic opening week. Uh, the day that podcast being re- re- released here, uh, uh, stage nine, the cobbled stage uh, that goes to Roubaix, a pretty crucial stage, um, but I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. Um, so, Patrick. You've been watching the Tour de France. You've been seeing who's in the lead. You've been seeing the way that the the stages unfold. What do you got? Sure. So, as you mentioned on the last podcast, uh, you know, these early stages are not so much, you know, generally the person leading now is not going to be the person leading later in in the race. Probably not. Probably not. So, I don't want to get into, all right, this person's in first, this person's in second. So, I'll ask you a bit more theoretical question. All right, cool, cool. And that is, so we talked about recovery last time, right, Mm -hmm. and how important it is to make sure the athlete recovers and about how, you know, outside of the race itself, there's actually a lot of important elements to go into making yeah. sure they complete And I'm the actually going to jump in because I want to add something to that. Not that, okay. like, I listened to what I said and, and I'm second-guessing what I said, but just to give an example of kind of what I was talking about. Okay. You remember how I, I, how I mentioned that they're always thinking about the next day? Right. Um, well, this first week in the tour has been extremely hot. Okay. And so I, uh, Lance Armstrong was actually saying on his podcast, he's recording, like, 30 to 40 minutes after every single stage – he was talking about how anybody who's screwing up their hydration right now during the first week is going to be feeling that later on. Mm-hmm. And so he was basically kind of making the, 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 the same point that I made. Because, you know, Lance Armstrong takes his cues from me, after all. Um, That's right. But, uh, <laughs> um, not all of them, maybe. Um, but anyway, um, uh, but case in point, um, so stage three um, was the team time trial. And going into the team time trial, the leader of the race, the guy that was wearing the yellow jersey, was Peter Sagan, who's currently the world champion. And he's... Uh, in his third year as his in his reign of being world champion he is uh, undoubtedly the best all-around cyclist in the world right now mm-hmm. um, uh, and he's 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 brilliant he's fantastic but he was wearing the yellow jersey he's in the lead um, about two-thirds of the way through the team time trial his team kind of rides away and and leaves him and he sits up and he doesn't look particularly good and it was a very sort of odd sight for all of us who were accustomed to seeing him being so so indomitable being right. so strong um, and you're kind of wondering what was going on. And so the next day, um, prior to the start of stage four, he put on Instagram that his team during the team time trial, very close to the start, hit a bump. 
and and when he hit that bump, he dropped his bottle, um, and he didn't want to do in the heat this super hard forty minute effort without any sort of hydration whatsoever, knowing that stage five and stage six, the stages on Wednesday and Thursday, were really suited to his characteristics. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to to dehydrate himself too much, and so he went for a while, but when he got to that point where he's like, you know what? this is going to take me too deep and it's going to compromise the other goals that I have later on. That's where he actually kind of backed off. So like I said, one of the re- the ways that they recover or one of the things that they do, one of the ways that they're able to manage a three week race is that they're always thinking about the next stage, right? Always thinking about, about what comes next. Um, and I think that's, you know, a bona fide example of that from, from this past weekend, the tour. Um, so yeah, and it obviously gets harder as the race goes on. Um, because they start sleeping less. A lot of them have had crashes, and so they'll have road rash all the way down the side of their body, so they can't sleep with that. Then their body's immune system is fighting off all the infection from the road rash, and so they end up getting colds. Right. So like in the last week, they race a bunch of them have colds and stuff. Um, it's grueling, man. It's tough. Yeah. Got to love the Tour de France. You've really convinced me to become a cyclist. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you, you mentioned the importance of a hydration. Right. Uh, if I remember correctly, it, it, a few smart dudes recorded a, an episode on the importance of hydration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the most pleasant so, uh, something, something podcast. Yeah, so if, if you are looking to, to hear you know, why hydration is so important beyond the obvious that water is important, if you want to know why and how to hydrate yourself, you can certainly listen you know, a few right episodes on. ago. Right on. But you, know, we, you talked about how he's this indomitable force. Mm-hmm. So here, here's kind of my question. We talked about recovery last time. Now let's mm-hmm. talk about kind of the, the actual race itself or, right. or what it takes to win the race. Right. What physical elements do you think are most important in a pro cyclist? Like uh, what separates a Lance Armstrong from a decent cyclist? All right. So I'm going to say, I'm gonna say two things about it. So first thing I'm going to say is that, that not all cycling races are the same. Okay. Um, and so there are some races that are longer and flatter. There are right. other ones that are hillier. There's are some that are literally mountainous, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, there's some that go over extremely rough terrain, like cobblestones and stuff like that. The thing that makes the, the, the Tour de France special, or one of the things that the Tour of France endeavors to do, along with the Tour of Italy and the Tour of Spain, one of the things that makes them the big races is that inside their three-week race, they try to do all of those things, mm-hmm. right? And so they try to have cobblestones and rough roads and hilly stages and flat stages and mountainous stages and time trials and team time trials even and all of that stuff um and the outcome of that is supposed to be that you end up getting the strongest all-around cyclist okay. a person who excels in a wide variety of things and so if you have like a great sprinter somebody who has has the ability to to punch a really 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 high power for a very short period of time you know, same skills basically that you would have in, in, in a track sprinter um that person is probably not going to be so good at, at, at maintaining a solid level of effort for an hour. And mm-hmm. so they're not going to be super good at going uphill, for example. Or they, they might be bigger and heavier. That's the reason why they're stronger and they're able to exert more power and sprint on the bike faster. Um, but that bigger and heavier doesn't help them very much when they're having to drag all that extra weight up a mountain. Right. right? Um, and so, so they have these flat sprint stages, then they also have the, these, these uphill mountainous stages. Then, of course, they have, they have time trials and, and cobblestone stages where the super light riders would get bounced all around on the cobblestones. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of dangerous and difficult for them. Um, so they're really good at going up mountains, but they're not good on cobblestones. Um, and then you have time trials where if you have somebody who's really diminutive and has very skinny legs, they might be brilliant at going uphill, but they can't produce the flat out power the wattage that you have to have in order to make yourself go fast on the time trials 
Right. And so, so it's supposed to be somebody who can do all of these different things. Um, and so the things that make somebody a good cyclist in one of those disciplines is not necessarily the same thing that's going to make you a good cyclist in another one of those things. So is it kind of like you need to be good enough at all three? Yeah. Because in most sports, it's like, well, I can't shoot free throws, but I'm seven <clears throat> foot four, so right. I don't have to. Right, you know? right. So, so to, to, to use that metaphor, in order to win the Tour de France, you have to be able to hit three-pointers, you have to be able to hit free throws, and you have to be able to dunk. Right, like, like it's it's not one or other type situation. You mm-hmm. need you need to be the slam dunk champion and the three point champion. Right, right, um, and so now you, you which can, which makes sense because it's an individual sport. Yeah. You know, in team sports, you just perform your one role for the most part. Well, that actually segues into the second thing I was going to say mm-hmm. you're going to need, and that's that you actually need some good support and a good team. But the 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 you could sort of cut across and say, okay, there's there's some things that that they have that all champions of the Tour de France have. They all have you know, a, a willingness to make themselves hurt when the time comes, right? They all have to be pretty lucky. Um, they ought to be fairly smart or tactical. They have to be good tacticians. They can't, like, um, go hard in the places where they shouldn't be going hard and, and then let go too easy in the places where, where they need to actually be trying to, to, to make differences. Um, so they need a good strategy. They need to be a good tactician, things like that. Um, and so all of those things kind of go together. They need to be good at managing their bodies and managing their hydration, all that sort of thing. I mean, so that kind of cuts across all the different cl- classes of them. But then the second thing you actually need to have is, is a team. You need to have a good team around you. Um, you can't win it solely by yourself. Um, uh, this year they changed the number of riders per team that could compete, and so it's eight now. And so if you imagine – a team does a couple of things for you. The better your riders are and the more devoted they are to your success in the tour, the better you're going to be able to do. Interesting. Um, and so, so if they're all devoted to you and helping you out, then you're going to be a whole lot better off. Mm-hmm. So the team does a couple of things for you, two things. One, they, they, um, they help you conserve energy. Because mm-hmm. I think I've said this before um, to you or, or on this podcast, um, that cycling and bike racing – it's all about just a few moments. Right. Like over the course of the three-week tour, there's probably going to be a total of maybe a dozen moments where the very best cyclists are going to be able to separate themselves from the other very best cyclists, right? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. NASCAR so, is the same way. Right. Same thing. And most of it's drafting off teammates. Right. You know. Right. Exactly. And so, so what the very best have to do is they have to save their energy for those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they're able to save their energy for those moments is that they rely upon their teammates. If you're drafting behind somebody, you save 30% of your energy. That's the difference between doing a tempo pace and doing an easy pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you've been doing an easy pace all day and then now it comes time to attack and, and, and sprint and go hard, you're going to be able, better able to do that than if you haven't been drafting off people all day and, and uh, you've been expending too much energy. And so they help you save your energy for those key moments. And then... In a similar vein, they also take care of you. Um, and so, you know, you have this caravan of cars that follows the Tour of France. Every team has two team cars, and they keep in there spare bikes and spare wheels and all the drinks and food and all that sort of thing. Um, and so, the race is always going. And if somebody in the race says, I need a drink, they have to drop back to the team car, pick up the bottle from the team car, they hand out the window at 30 miles an hour, and then they have to ride back up through the cars and back into the pack. And so not only does it take some energy to kind of you know, surge and break and all that sort of thing, but it's also a little bit dangerous. The people who are leading, who are trying to win the overall race, they aren't doing that. 
they're sending mm-hmm. their teammates back to do that for them. And so their teammates are using the energy, but also staying safe and, and taking care of them. Um, a couple of stages ago on stage four, there was a there was a crash with about five kilometers to go. And one of the team Golly, leaders that's like nothing on a bike. So yeah, and, and, and it's yeah, it's it's very, very end. And so of course the race continues on and some of the people who crashed are people who are trying to win the race overall. And so they're losing time. You know, um, and so they jump up real quick. There was a leader named Rigoberto Oran, um, and his bike was unrideable. And so one of his teammates was right there with him, gave him his bike, pushed him off, and Rigoberto Oran rode off on his teammate's bike. Really? Yeah. So you can change bikes. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And and so so taking care of you in that regard, taking care of you if you need drinks, taking care of you if you need that. You know, if some if 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 he crashes, if if Rigoberto Oran did crash, four of his teammates who didn't crash came back out of the pack and helped shepherd him back up to the pack and somehow incredibly were able to get him back to the pack before the finish um so he didn't end up losing any time on the stage um he wouldn't have been able to do that on his own um so not only is it saving him the energy that he'll be able to use at more crucial points in the race but he literally would not have been able to catch up to the pack and would have lost a minute or so on the people who didn't crash um, and that would have hurt his overall chances and so 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 yeah all of those things we mentioned with individual stuff and then the team stuff and then the team, in turn, both takes care of you and they, they help you save your energy. So that was a much longer answer. I should say that, that, that we're recording this on a weekday here at Patrick's house, and I just taught class today, so I've, I'm, I'm sort of in my professorial mode. <laughs> that, that's okay because, you know, part of the reason we do this podcast and part of the reason we talk about the Tour de France and, like, the NCAA championships and track and field and, you know, the Boston Marathon winners, things of that nature is because we want people in this podcast to kind of start to become fans of the sport, right? Absolutely. And that's something where it, it can be hard to do because it's not quite as easy as some of the main sports where you just turn on ESPN and there's, there's a lot of different channels for, for kind of consuming the sport and kind of learning about what it takes to be professional, what constraints the professionals are facing, and things of that nature. And in any sport, if you don't know what constraints the athletes face or what context or circumstance the athletes are competing in, it's mm-hmm. hard to appreciate, yeah. right? If you've no, never totally. watched a NASCAR race... The first time you watch it, you're just going to be thinking. They're just going yeah. in circles. What's going on? For sure. You know, if you don't understand drafting, things of that nature. Um, I obviously am not a cyclist. Uh, I have very, very novice understanding of Tour de France. So to me, this is always helpful to kind of know, you know, what I'm watching. You can understand the drama a lot more. And that's why we have these discussions is yeah. it, it helps kind of draw people in. And the beauty of our sport, cycling and running and, and triathloning, is we really can participate, in a, I think, in a way um, that allows us to better – we can participate in our sport in a way that's a bit more directly transferable from professional athletes. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we've had that conversation before. Yeah, and, and we got ob- a little pushback on it. Yeah, and yeah. obviously, it's you know I don't want to say that you can't learn from professional athletes in other sports, but it, it's just kind of a, it, it's a bit of a different nature because we're all working with human bodies. It's a lot of the same physio- physiological mm-hmm. constraints, things of that nature. Yeah. Though obviously, they have different limits and different degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting. These discussions allow us to kind of help us to participate and you know to kind of have a better understanding and a better enjoyment and better engagement with the sport itself. Absolutely. I should also mention, by the way, um, right now the women's Giro d'Italia is going on. It's the Giro mm-hmm. Rosa, and Americans have been kicking ass in that. Um, and so it's been really kind of fun to, mm-hmm. just to see that uh, women's cycling is very very. I'm not going to say resurgent, whatever the the the. It's not a re anything. It's it's surgery. starting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so so it's it's, genesis, it's, it's, if you yeah, will. Yeah, it's 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 getting it's getting very strong very quickly, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of exciting to watch. So, 
When we, uh, when we do our next news and research one, we'll, of course, uh, update you on the Tour de France, but also look forward to updating you on the Zero Rosa and talking a little bit about that as well. Um, so, yeah, very cool. But today we have something different we're going to talk about. Today we're going to talk about weight training. That's right. That's right. We're going to talk about strength training. So to all our listeners out there, if you're looking for a podcast with two muscle strap men to talk about strength training, I suggest you keep searching. (laughs) I was was, was like, where are you going with that one? Uh, But if you want to hear what George and I have to say about strength training, you're in luck. Absolutely. um, Now, now quick uh, quick disclaimer. mm -hmm. Um, uh, We have joked on this podcast before about how both of us have sort of negative associations with strength training. Yes. Right? Um, but at the same time, we've talked about how we sort of grew out of an era when, when strength training and endurance stuff, particularly for runners, um, was, was not really the norm. Um, and as we discussed with Pete Ray, as anybody can see inside the, the endurance world, there's been a real sea change in that yes. over the course of the past decade, that, that strength training is now a, a fundamental part of, of the endurance process. And, and not coincidentally, there's, there's been a lot more research about it and a, and a lot more discussion and, and experimentation about how to best integrate it into your endurance program. That's right. And so two quick things on that. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, building an, your aerobic endurance or, or your lactic threshold or, or a bit more the, the running-based, um, you know, training philosophies, a lot of that is based in Lydiard and Bowerman from the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. But the, the strength training stuff, a lot of that is really new research yeah. um, because we're still just kind of figuring out. And then in terms of our kind of reluctance to, to engage in strength training, a lot of that is because since we came of age before a lot of this research started, a lot of our instructions when we were in high school and college came from, you know, like the football strength training coach, right? right. And they just tried to copy and paste. And I'm going to give them some credit, but, you know, it's just a different frame of mind. Right. And so that, that changes your experience when you're not able to – you know, kind of start with, with your group in mind or your goals in mind. I'm trying to remember, and I tried to look it up real quick while you were just talking, the quotation from Arthur Lydiard about strength training. And it's something to the effect of my athletes would never be caught dead in a weight room or something like that. Right. Um, you know, but, but it's something along the, and, and he, he suggest now, but he did suggest what we would more generally call strength training, um, like doing explosive repeats on hills and things like that. Right. And so, but, but, but he just didn't believe in the efficacy of, of, lifting heavy weights mm-hmm. um and as we'll discuss here in just a minute lifting heavy weights is is one way a very common way probably the most common way of going about strength training um but it's not the only way to go about strength training um so let's start off with the with the whole why then i think that's actually a yeah. good place to start since we're talking about why you do it so take it away yeah so let's actually first by start by by saying we need to dispel a myth so one thing i hear endurance athletes talk about when they, when they talk about strength training and weight training is they want to mimic the race, right? right. And they, want to, they think the goal of strength training is to build your muscular, muscular endurance via high rep, low weight strength training, right? right? It's, all right, I'm going to do three sets of 12 on the bench press, something of that nature. Or, or, or three sets of 25. Yeah. yeah. Whew. Um, but quite honestly, that's not what we're trying to do. You're not trying right. to build muscular endurance. We're doing that via running. You know, we're building our endurance via, via the running, the cycling. Right. What we're trying to do in weight training, one of the big things we're doing with strength training is we're trying to build your ability to generate force and to build your muscles' ability to generate a high rate of force quickly, mm-hmm. right? So, you, so that may sound like, like why would I want to be able to generate a lot of force when I'm running? And that's because the more force you generate when you're running, the, the higher your peak, so to speak, mm-hmm. the, the, the faster you're going to be able to go 
at an easy pace, right? Then 70% of that, if you're generating force at, at your 70% of your max, you're going to be running at a much, much quicker pace than you would be if, you know, your, your, your kind of peak was, was much lower. Yeah, right? we, can, we can put it in terms that, that cyclists would probably be able to understand pretty well. Yes. And we, we can put it in terms of wattage. Mm-hmm. Um, because because cyclists and, and certainly triathletes um, can use wattage can can measure how many watts they're actually putting in, into their cranks when they're pedaling. Um, if the absolute maximum wattage that you can put in for five seconds is one thousand watts, if you can put in one thousand watts for five seconds, you can probably put in seven hundred watts for ten seconds. If you can put in seven hundred watts for ten seconds, you can probably put in four hundred watts for one minute. Mm-hmm. If you can put in four hundred watts for one minute. That means that you can probably put in 280 watts for, for seven minutes. Right. And you, and you can kind of go on and on and on in that regard, right? That's right. And so, so any improvement that you make to that top end is going to ripple through all of those things. Um, and so, so if you are able to generate force when running of, of 1,000, that's going to make generating force of 300 that much easier to do. That's right. Um, yeah. Now, it's not the only and, component. <laughs> yeah, and, and to kind of take a step back, too, where we talk about, like, force development and, and force generation, mm-hmm. you know, that's what running fast is in a lot of ways. That's mm-hmm. a key component yeah. of running yeah. fast or of cycling fast is yeah. generating the power to, you know, essentially spring off the ground mm-hmm. and have your legs turn over quickly. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, one misconception I think people have about fast runners is that, oh, the, you know, we're all skinny, we, you know, we, you know we're kind of weakling, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Um, but actually given, given our size, most very fast runners actually can produce a lot of force mm-hmm. given their size. Right. Now that doesn't mean they're going to walk into the weight room, clear out the bench and then, you know, crush 450 pounds. Right. That's not the same. That's like pure power. I mean, not, not all of us. I mean, some of us. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, George. Um, <laughs> but it, it, you know, that is a key component to running fast. Like if you look at, at your Strava County, your great adjusted pace while you're running uphill, your legs are having to generate a lot of force to kind of motor up the hill, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's what, why I wanted to kind of start with, with that myth because a lot of folks, you know, most of what we do running-wise, we're building endurance. We have long runs. We have medium long runs. We have easy runs. We have tempo runs. The whole point is to kind of increase the distance which with which we can run right. at a certain pace right. so we go to the weight room with that mindset and it really is not what you want right what you really are trying to do is you're trying to, to build your muscles ability to generate force and to generate a lot of it quickly exactly yeah we had a we we had a conversation on this podcast um several months ago about okay so what are the essential elements of endurance training mm-hmm. um and and how do you go about training those things uh, you have you know lactate threshold. You have VO2 max. You have endurance. Um, all of these different things that we talked about. When you think about okay, going to do some weight training, going to do some strength training. What do you want it to accomplish? Which mm-hmm. of the systems you want to train? The one that you want to train is is your strength. Right. You you don't want it to train your endurance. You don't need it to train your endurance. You're getting your endurance training via the other training that you're doing mm-hmm. uh, by the long bike rides, by the by the swims, by the, the by by the runs. You don't need to then further or attempt to further increase your endurance by by going in the weight room and doing that. And and I'm here to tell you it doesn't work anyway. Uh, right. You know, do, do, doing you could do four sets of of fifty. That's not going to increase your muscular endurance. Um, what's, it, it's certainly not going to increase your muscular endurance as much as going out and doing a tempo run 
or, or, or doing a good solid trainer workout on the bike. Uh, but it will hinder your ability to get in the next tempo run. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you want to think about it in terms of, of, of what component are you trying to train, you're trying to make yourself stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't do that by doing these really long things. Now, on the same, <clears throat> along the same lines, uh, talking about sort of dispelling myths or dispelling misconceptions. And I should mention also, you said that like when, when we were in college, the, the, the strength coaches, so that, that's actually kind of what our strength coaches told us to do back in the day. It was, oh, yeah, do you know, four, set, four sets of 25 and stuff like that because they didn't know. Right. Um, so, they, so, so they just sort of presumed. But the other thing that they would always have us do that, that I always resented a little bit because I felt silly doing it would be to like mimic – running motions um and so we'd like put two five pound plates in our hands and we'd hold them and we'd swing our arms as if we were running Mm -hmm. that's that's not necessary um if you want if you want to develop more muscular endurance in your arms that will help you um uh carry your arms for longer time you're doing that via your runs via, via your running or via your cycling or whatever it happens to be you don't you don't increase your ability to do those things to to swing your arms powerfully um, or for a long period of time, I should say. You don't increase the endurance in your arm swing by swinging five-pound plates. You increase the power with which you can swing your arms by, by doing some more traditional weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, using the weight room, it's not about doing these real specific movements for running, trying to mimic running and do the same things you get from your runs. You're trying to do something different. Yeah, and I, I'm so glad you brought up what I, I call it the myth of mimicry. Because <laughs> um, that's exactly what our weight training program was like in college. It was a lot of things like, all right, we're going to mimic your running style. Mm-hmm. And I remember one thing, so you talked about like trying to mimic it from the upper body. Mm-hmm. We tried to do that with the lower body as well. Like I remember we had a drill where it, you would like jog and then stop and balance while holding a fi- two five-pound dumbbells, and you would balance on one leg for like a full minute. Okay. And then do the same thing on your left leg. So you're like a stork for a little while. Well, when are, while you're running, are you ever going to be balanced on one leg with all your weight on one single leg? Almost never. Not I mean, with a full, with your full weight pressed down on it. I mean, ba- you know, balancing and like standing on one foot. I mean, that that's worthwhile. If if, if you think about, uh, you know, I I was reading an Ultra Runner recently, and she was talking about how she 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 makes a point of standing on one foot, like when she's cooking eggs, when she's brushing teeth, and stuff like that. And it's sort of a way of just kind of like working in some core training and stuff like that while mm-hmm. she's doing it. But yeah, going that that's to me that's a waste of your weight room time. Exactly. Um, if, if if you're surrounded by, by heavy weights and that's what you're doing, I just I just don't think that's a good use of your time. Um, you know, in, there's certainly some some. I, I appreciate the creativity in trying to engage or promote exercises that are that are geared towards kind of mimicking running. But the best way to mimic running is to run. Right. And then what we're really doing in the weight room is we're enhancing some physiological changes or stimulating some physiological changes that maybe you can't do just that from you running. can't get from running. Precisely, or, uh, or from cycling, or, or from something else like that. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to be leaving out those other two, but 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 I, I I do think it's an important thing to kind of keep in mind. So, increasing power. Yeah, and so to kind of talk about what that means too, uh, that means that if you're looking at, all right, well, how much do I lift? How many reps do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Generally, you want to be lifting a moderate amount of weight. You know, 70 percent of your max. You know, three to six reps, mm-hmm. something of that nature. Yeah. You're not having to do 20 reps. You're not having to do 30 reps. But you're also not maxing out. You're not trying to just, you know, um, build a bunch of power and muscle. What you're trying to do is you essentially take the muscle that you have and then increase its ability to generate a lot of force. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're lifting those heavy weights, that really kind of challenges your nervous system without having a very high total volume or high 
amount of weight, which would elicit gains in muscle size. Right. The the three to six, I was telling my students this today, um, when it came to like page requirements for a paper, mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, when, when, when you have a five to seven page page requirement for a paper, what that is, is that's an indication of the depth that the professor wants you to go to in rewriting. Right. That, that, that based on the experience of the professor, that students who, who are explaining thoroughly and, and, and researching deeply enough, take, it takes about five to seven pages for them to, to do that. Right. Um, the expected level, that's how, long, how much you're going to write. The four to six or three to six guideline, um, I, I, that's also an indication of the depth. Right. Uh, so so that, that, that's an indication of how hard it should be. Um, if, you can, if you can do it 25 times, it's not heavy enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, sh- it should be something that you're not about to drop on yourself during that sixth repeat, but it should be something that you probably couldn't do three sets of 10. Probably you could only do about three sets of six. And so that's an indication of, of, of how heavy it should actually be. That's so again, right. not dropping it on yourself, but, but at the same you know, and not like on the verge of failure. But you shouldn't be able to do a whole lot more than, than, than four to six repeats with them. Um, if you are, you're doing too light of a weight to, to stimulate a good strength response. Yeah, and I think you actually bring up another good point. Um, and one thing I always say is the bar speed doesn't lie. And what I mean by that is we're not trying to, once again, we're not looking to max out. We're not looking to build muscle mass. So if you are you know have a certain amount of weight on there and at the end your bar speed's really slowing down and you're you know <laughs> trying to get it up there, that's not what you want. You, you know, once again, in running, you're not trying to, to push a sled. You're not trying to, you know, move a truck necessarily, although I know you could do that, George. Yeah. Um, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to generate a lot of force, you know, quickly. And, the, you know, what you're trying to do is increase your, your, your body's ability to recruit muscle fibers. So, like, if you're having to run uphill, you can generate that force, motor up the hill, and do so efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, and we're starting to kind of touch on some of the different types here because that would be like explosive lifting and traditional weightlifting, circuit training, plyometrics. So, so, so before we do that, let's kind of circle back around and finish up talking about why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so again, if, if, if there's nothing else you're going to take from this podcast what today, this podcast episode, what you should take is, is the point of adding strength training is to increase your top-end power, to increase your strength. Um, but that being said, there's a couple other things it does for you as well. Um, it makes you more durable. Um, and I like that term. That's a term that's kind of come into in, in vogue. Uh, it makes you more durable in that it strengthens a lot of um, a lot of your tendons and ligaments, um, and then it, it can potentially correct a lot of strength imbalances that you have. Um, and so, if you have imbalances, say in your glutes, um, and when you go out and run, your body automatically compensates for those things. Um, when you when you ride your bike, a little bit less so, but still kind of. You can shift the way that you move. When you swim, your body totally compensates for those things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you're not necessarily going to address strength imbalances by, by doing your endurance sport. Um, and, and when you lift weights, you can, in fact, address a lot of those strength imbalances. Uh, strength imbalances can, can, can cause overuse injuries because you'll end up using the stronger side more than the weaker side, and the stronger side will end up getting injured or some other issue related to that. Um, likewise, your, your, your tendons, your ligaments, um, moving them through a full range of motion, such as what you have to do in order to be able to, to, to power a weight up, um, that makes them stronger. That makes them tougher. Um, it subjects them potentially to injury, and so obviously you want to be careful, but, but, um, but, but it, it can ultimately make you a more durable runner. That's right. Um, 
Uh, and then the, the other thing it does for you, and, and Patrick kind of referenced this before, is it, is it can increase your efficiency. Um, there's been some kind of mixed studies on this, um, but, but two studies I do want to point out. Um, one of them was a 2008 study from Norway that showed a 5% increase in running economy uh, and a 21% increase in run to exhaustion, which is a profound amount mm-hmm. um, when it comes to that. Uh, in a study of 17 runners who performed leg exercises. Um, so a 5% increase in, in economy, essentially what that means is that the runners used 5% less energy um, to go the same speed that they would have been going before, before they actually underwent all the, the strength training. Um, you want to be every runner, every athlete, every swimmer, certainly, since you're, you're pushing yourself through water, every cyclist, you want to be as economical as possible. You want to make sure that all the energy and effort that you're putting in here is, is geared towards moving you forward. Um, you don't want it to be geared towards trying to hold your, your, your form together. Um, and so, so a 5% increase in economy that that's going to automatically translate into greater endurance over time. Um, and then there's also a 2006 study from Australian Institute for sport where they took 15 elite runners, uh, and they gave them three strength sessions every week. And they found that they also improved their economy about 4% over just nine weeks. Um, Interestingly, I thought this was uh, uh, kind of cool. There was no increase in their economy at the slower speeds. So when they were just running easy, they didn't have any increase in their economy. But at fast speeds, and these were uh, these were elite 3K and 5K runners, uh, they found a 4% increase in their economy at those fast speeds. Um, so, I mean, 4% is a lot. It pays off. Right. Yeah. Um, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say another way to put that is you know, you're almost shaming your body into being more efficient. <laughs> um, you're, or, you, you know, you're, you're forcing your body to, to make the, the correct adaption, mm-hmm. adaptations excuse me, to, right. to be able to run efficiently. Absolutely. Um, the final thing that it does, and, and this is important particularly for female athletes and particularly for aging athletes, That's right. uh, is that it gives you a little bit of a testosterone boost. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, as, as you get older, um, the, the particular, as you not get, that you would know anything about that. Not George. that I would know a single thing about that. But as, as you get older, your, your, your testosterone begins to naturally lower. Um, and, and doing lifting heavy weights gives a testosterone boost. Um, uh, it's the same for women. Women do have testosterone in their bodies, just not a whole lot. Um, and so they, they get a boost, um, in, in growth hormone, um, from, from, uh, lifting heavy weights. Um, with that in mind, um, a few years ago when I was at a USATF uh, professional development a clinic, um, the, the leader of the clinic said, said, that's why, I was talking about this, he said, that's why you should actually take weightlifting up to closer to race time for women that's than right. you should for men. Um, and so for, for men, you should, before a big target race, you should cut off their weightlifting about, about two weeks out, he said. Um, and there's some disagreement on that, but that's okay. Um, uh, he said, "For women, you should take it up to about five or six days ahead of time, um, because you want to make sure they're getting the, the continued benefit of that testosterone boost all, all the way up through their race." And I actually went up to him afterwards and said, "Does that apply for older athletes as well?" Um, and he said, "I don't know, but that makes sense." Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and 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 I and I, I that's kind of the way I feel about it as well. Um, and so with my older athletes uh, that I have on strength programs and with my, my women athletes that I have on strength programs, I, I, I will take them up closer to their target race if they're doing strength training. Absolutely. And to me, this is, I mean, if you ask me why, why should we engage in strength training as endurance athletes, the top two reasons are it increases your ability to generate force and it promotes recovery via the release, the, essentially the extra hormonal release of testosterone. So to kind of backtrack a bit, testosterone in many ways is essentially the recovery drug. 
right? That's why, like, for example, baseball players take testosterone, not so necessarily to hit the ball farther, but because it helps them kind of recover for the next day's game, probably similar to, to Tour de France. It, it, you know, that it really is, you know, what kind of helps your, your muscles recover in a way that's significantly more efficient than, you know, if you would have lower levels of testosterone. Um, and what happens when you're lifting weights is, you know, your, your body knows it's about to engage in a, in a strenuous activity, and so it releases a, essentially more testosterone than it needs. So when you get done lifting, you almost have extra left over. And so n- not to mention all the, the testosterone you have kind of pumping through your veins while you're actually lifting, lifting and having to engage in the activity. So it really helps promote recovery because it gets you know, that extra testosterone in the system. It, it really kind of helps you, your, your body re- rebuild itself and um, you know, kind of recover and get back at it for, for the next run or the next workout. And this is actually a little bit out of order, but this is a quick thing, and, and it segues really nicely from what we are just talking about. Um, a question you'll often get is about how long should a strength session last? And the strength session is about 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, and so, so when we're talking about should I do weight training, should you do weight training, I'm not, I'm not saying you should be going into the weight room and spending you know, four hours after work there every other day. Um, 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, and the reason why is because testosterone levels peak at about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... After about that same point, about 30 or 40 minutes, um, your cortisol levels start going up. Mm-hmm. And so the ideal time, if you can, and, and there might be, you might be strapped for time throughout the course of the rest of your week or something else like that, but, but the ideal time to, to lift weights is only about 30 to 45 minutes because that's where you get the maximum testosterone boost with the least cortisol stress hormone boost right. there. Um, you're better off capping it around 30 minutes or so. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about sort of the, the, the what and how, and then we'll talk about the when. Um, so there's a few different types of, of strength training. And like we said before, Arthur Lydia joked that, that – I don't think he was joking actually. Uh, yeah. but, but, but said something to the effect that, that, that none of his athletes would ever be caught dead in a gym. But, but he did advocate for like some, some circuit training and that kind of thing. Um, and so he actually did in, uh, uh, embed some strength training into the work that he had his athletes do. So – um, we'll start off with that one then. Circuit training. Um, if you know anybody that goes to Orange Theory or they go to CrossFit, that's kind of circuit training-ish. Um, it's, it's where you, you, you move quickly from exercise to exercise. You might mix in some aerobic exercise in there along the way, uh, stuff like that. Um, um, and then, of course, you, you, you have weightlifting in there too. Um, circuit training is perfectly legitimate. It has been shown to increase uh, maximum VO2 in untrained people, which is... If you go on CrossFit's website, that's the first thing they'll say. <laughs> it's been shown to, to, to increase VO2. That's increasing VO2 in untrained people. Right. Um, the way that whether it increases VO2 for trained people, that, that's not clear, and it's, it's probably not likely. And, of course, it's important to keep in mind that the VO2 is only one element of this whole thing. Um, it's good for folks who can't run as much. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's coming back from injury, um, or somebody who, who has reduced mileage because they can't run as much, like, say, me um, – Circuit training can be a really good thing. Um, it can be a really, really positive thing. Um, but you always do need to make sure that you consider, if you're looking at Orange Theory or just sort of traditional circuit training, if you want to go to your, your local gym and just kind of move quickly from machine to machine, that you, you consider it as part of an overall plan. Um, a true circuit training workout um, where you're moving quickly from thing to thing, that, that, that's a hard day. Um, and the one thing that we say so often on this podcast is you should make your hard days hard and your easy days easy. That's a hard day. Right. Um, and so you shouldn't go do a track workout on, on Monday and then a, a 
CrossFit session on Tuesday and then a hard trainer workout on Wednesday, like that's too much hard work all in a row, unless you're planning for a whole lot of easy days coming up. Um, uh, you shouldn't treat that as an easy day because it's not an easy day if you're out there doing circuit training. Um, what do you have to add about circuit training? You ever done it before? Yeah, that's actually the, what the type of strength training I engage in most often. Mm. Um, and a, a big reason why, quite honestly, is it's the least time-consuming to some degree. Yeah, you're almost getting the most amount of workouts in the least amount of time because mm-hmm. you're almost running from from session to session or from you know uh, station to station. Mm-hmm. So you can be done in twenty twenty-five minutes and have having lifted you yeah. know just about everything they have in the gym. And 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 I think frankly that circuit training by its nature it appeals more to endurance athletes because it's it's more of what we know yeah do you know what i'm saying like like the idea of of, all right like we were just talking about doing six repeats so so you do six repeats of a weight and then you sit there and wait for two minutes because that's by the way about how long your rest should be if you're doing traditional weightlifting about two minutes that's how long it takes for 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 those stores that are going to fuel those six reps to restore um that's that's weird. We feel like we're wasting time. We're just sitting there for for two minutes, right? Yeah. Um, and so so I think circuit training is something that appeals to a lot of us because we can say, all right, let's go. You know, let's mm-hmm. go quickly. Um, but again, that that makes for a hard day. It makes for a hard workout, particularly if you're mixing running or cycling into it. Um, and so you have to kind of take it in, into account with a mind your overall training program. Um, uh, then of course you have you have traditional weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Traditional weightlifting is, is what we referred to before, and it's where you are. Uh, um, lifting heavy weights four to six three to six uh, repeats at a time three to four sets at a time and taking long rests in between mm-hmm. um, and so you might do front squats and and uh, lat pulls and and whatever else you decide to do but but you're sitting there and you're waiting throughout the time um, that has not been shown to increase back to two um, it has of course been shown to increase power mm-hmm. um but interestingly enough, uh, when studies have been done of runners who did solely traditional weightlifting, their max VO2 did not decrease over the course of, of, of the time. And so I think that's kind of interesting. Um, and I think it's something that I've, I've experienced hmm. a little bit as well. And so let's say, for example, you go on a cruise. Um, uh, you go on a cruise and, and you're not able to run as much when you're on the cruise. You're certainly not able to do a whole lot of really you know, heavy workouts when you're on the cruise. If you mix in some traditional weightlifting, even if you don't normally lift weights, that can help stave off some of the the losses in max VO2 you might get over the course of that seven-night, ten-night cruise, whatever it happens to be. That's if you're going on a really nice cruise. Right. I'm speaking from very recent personal experience. Yeah, yeah. but that's actually still an an important point to make, though, that Mm -hmm. sometimes this can help kind of supplement your training. And, you Mm -hmm. know, if you're injured and you need to take off a week, if you're Mm -hmm. traveling and you can't run Mm -hmm. um, or cycle, Mm -hmm. you know, it it can be an important alternative to kind of keep your body moving and to keep the blood flow going to your muscles and your tendons so you don't get stiff and there's not any atrophy. I think it's particularly good for triathletes, like you're saying, because, you know, triathlete is is so gear laden. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so gear dependent, um, runners, and that's, this is the great thing about running runners is that you need a pair of shoes and you have the open road. I mean, right. Um, you know, when my, my dad was traveling a whole lot in the eighties when he was running a whole lot as well, and he would, he would go for a run wherever he was and it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've done the same thing to a much lesser degree, um, getting to run in all of these places and it's, it's a great way to see them. Right. You know, um, but you can't do a trainer workout or a bike workout. If you 
take the plane to Prague unless you bring your bike with you or unless you find a spin studio or something like that. Right. Um, and so you can almost always find a gym or at least do some body weight work or something. Um, and so, so some strength work, some weight training can be a good way to, to, like you said, keep your body moving when you're not able to stay to your regular training plan. Um, then, of course, you have explosive lifting. Mm-hmm. Explosive lifting is the sort of thing that, that Patrick talked about just a minute ago. It's the sort of training that they did in that Australian Institute for Sports study that I mentioned just a second ago. Um, explosive weight training would be when um, you would you would do it similar to, to, to traditional weight lifting. You would take the longer rest. You would do three or six sets, but you would pay close attention to the speed at which you're using the bar. And so, for example, if you were doing uh, a squat, um, you would sort of squat down to, to your, the, the level to which you were squatting um, uh, slowly, and then you would explode up, and you, you'd go very quickly there. Um, that's been shown to, to be a little bit more effective at boosting testosterone. Um, and so given that that's, like you said, one of the, the major things that we want to do, uh, that would be a good thing. Um, but there's not a lot of conclusive evidence that explosive lifting in itself is going to be profoundly better than traditional weightlifting. Correct. Um, and so, so, yeah, you might want to give it a shot, um, see if it works for you, um, but it's not necessarily going to be profoundly better. Um, and at, at, at the very least, though, the one thing that we can take from it is that your bar speed should not be slow, as Patrick mentioned a little while ago. Make that sound again that you made when, when people... <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to lift something heavy again. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Hand me that then, pencil. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the final thing, um, and I know that there's a lot of uh, like pro runners that, that engage in this sort of thing, are plyometrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, plyometric, there's, there's, um, um, there is some, some evidence that the plyometrics uh, do need to focus on your lower body. Consider that Norway study that we talked about before. Um, but uh, but, but uh, plyometrics would be like explosive bounding and, and things like that. Um, the effective plyometrics are done as a separate session. It's not like, oh, I just went for a run, now let me do 10 of these. No, you actually plan it out and you spend 30 hours doing explosive plyometrics and all that sort of thing. And again, kind of circling back around to the very first point, and then I'm going to let Patrick talk. Um, circling around to the very first point that we made, you, you might kind of feel like a sprinter doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, you it, it might be outside of your comfort zone. But that's kind of precisely the reason that, that it can be helpful. The more you feel out of your comfort zone doing it, the probably the better it is for you as an athlete. Um, that that uh, it's going to provide you new and better stimulants. It's going to be training systems that you've never really trained before because you've never done anything like this. Um, and I think that's that's very much true with with plyometrics. Um, jumping up and down on boxes or benches, um, uh, doing explosive bounding and things like that. I think that can feel very foreign for endurance athletes. Um, but I think it can be very worthwhile and and research bears that out yeah and the one the one caveat or caveat excuse me i'll say for uh the plyometrics is if for example you're doing like the bounds on the on the box and you're, you're doing the box jumping and your knees are hurting yeah that that then you need to rethink your strategy yeah. and i say that because it can be incredibly helpful however a lot of the plyometric training specifically does put a lot of stress on your body mm-hmm. in a way that so for example if if you were to sit down on the bench press and there's a you know, bunch of weight on there. You try, oh, I can't do it. Then you take weight off. Mm-hmm. But like for, 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 you know, bounding, for, for, for box jumping, you can't, you know, your body is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't really take away that same pressure. So if you are noticing that your knees are hurting or something of, of that nature, and not just hurting, but like a, a, 
a joint or a tendon or a bone is hurting, not a muscle, mm-hmm. then you, you may need to, to rethink your strategy. Agreed. And then I also want to say too, we've talked about these different types of weight trainings um, and, and strength training. So I just want to throw this kind of in the middle here. Uh, strength training is, it is not the core of your training. It is a, a nice specialty to add to, to the core, which is the, the long runs, the tempo runs, the easy runs, the track workouts, etc. So I do want to just kind of throw that quick reminder out there that this is, you know, this is essentially the cherry on top. It's not the fruits, the vegetables, and the grains, so to speak. I agree, and and it's it's something that 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 can, I, I we don't want to over prescribe that because I think that given that people people might say, okay, it's the first thing that's going to come off the list. Well, okay, that makes sense too, um, but but. Anybody who tells you that, that, that weightlifting should be the foundation of your endurance program right. <laughs> kind of has the wrong approach. Or, um, or if you find yourself crushing it in the weight room and then cutting your tempo right yeah, short, yeah. You know, re- then we need to rethink the strategy. Well, and, and so that actually segues into, into the, the, the next thing we want to talk about, and that's when do you do it? Mm-hmm. So, and there's, there's a lot of disagreement inside the endurance community about when you do it, um, and that's okay. Because I think there's a lot of space for for using strength in different ways, but and, and um, that gets back to our original point that this is a new mm-hmm. part of endurance yeah. um, research. Yeah. This is not something you saw in the 80s or 90s. Really, I mean, I, I don't have an exact history, but it didn't really get started or really kind of enter the the, the mainstream thinking until Alan Webb. He was the one yeah. that really kind of changed people's thinking on on weight training that. specifically. I could and see that. And that was in the early two thousands, early to mid two thousands. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, he. Um, I I could certainly see that because um, he was pretty buff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, so when should you do this? Um, the the when you should do it. We're going to talk about what the ideal is, and then kind of a couple of other caveats to to, to consider. With the athletes that I work with, I've had lots of conversations with them about when the best time to do their strength training is. If you're going to a class or or you can only squeeze it in on a particular day or something else like that, it's probably better to do it at a less than ideal time than to not do it at all. Yeah, um, and great and point. So, so so it's kind of important to keep that in mind too. And and hopefully that's kind of the a, a grain of salt that you 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 apply to most of the things that we talk about on this podcast. On this podcast we talk about things being ideal oftentimes and and when you download things into your life you can't always download them in an ideal fashion. Correct. Um and so so that's something to kind of keep in mind here. Now, that being said, the ideal way, the way that has been showed to get the maximum strength gains without influencing your running the most is you do it on a hard day after your workout. Six, six hours later. There okay. you go. All right. So you do a hard track workout on Tuesday morning. You go to lunch on Tuesday during midday. You go to the gym. You do your session then. That's the ideal situation. That doesn't work for everybody. Right. <laughs> but, that, but that's the ideal situation. So what's more, there's a couple other things that, that you might consider when you're considering how to build it in. So uh, when we talked about some of our favorite runs before, some of our favorite workouts before, I talked about the post-strength run as being one of mine. You talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so you talked about kind of lifting after a hard workout, right? Mm-hmm. So I kind of break it down into two kind of basic categories, pre-run, post-run, mm-hmm. very complex. Um, but when you're lifting after a run, what you're doing is you're engaging the muscle fibers when they're fatigued, and you're you're kind of essentially forcing them to keep going, right? right? You are... 
you are lifting under a fatigue state and you're, you're forcing your body to say, hey, we're low on glycogen, but guess what? We have to do this. We have to lift this. So you're kind of building that pattern of recruiting muscle fibers and engaging and firing muscles in a fatigue state, which will, of course, help you during the run. What you're also doing is you're getting that testosterone release. We um, talked about earlier, which promotes recovery, which then helps you then engage in a hard workout sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Or even not necessarily a hard workout. It makes your easier run even easier, right? So mm-hmm. there's not quite as much lingering soreness. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's lifting after workout. Mm-hmm. Lifting before run or, or before workout, what that does is it, is it kind of allows your, your run to be a, an easy run but in a fatigue state. Right. And by easy, I don't mean it's going to feel easy. It's going to feel pretty hard. It's, I mean, in fact, it's going to be, it could potentially be one of the hardest runs of your week or of your training cycle. Mm-hmm. But when you lift first and then run second, it allows you to get in, you know, mileage at a fatigue state without having to run an hour and a half. Right. You're not having to put in 10 miles on your legs. You know, you're not having to engage in kind of builds that, you know, towards an overuse in- injury or kind of, you know, put the mileage or the wear and tear on your legs. The pounding. The pounding, so to speak but you're still getting the benefits of a longer run. So that's what I really enjoy about it because you're going to the workout. Even if you don't do much lower leg strength work, you're still going to go into that workout very tired. Yeah. Your arms are going to be tired. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're, even your lungs are going to be a little fatigued just because they've had to generate a lot of oxygen to kind of generate the force and really kind of lift the, the, the weights off the ground, so to speak. Your brain's going to be tired. And that's the other thing I was going to say too is you're going to have the mental fatigue. You've already been through a workout for 40 minutes um, or 30 minutes. So that to me, those are kind of the two different ways I look at, at strength training when I really think at what am I trying to do here. Right. Um, well, we talked about, you know, I want to increase force. I want to, you know, get the, the hormonal and testosterone release. I want to, you know, build my durability. But then I can do that two different ways. I can do it before running or after running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And each provides their own benefits. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of for the athletes that I coach because I tend to coach athletes that do long course stuff, yeah. be, it, be it marathons or Ironmans. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but I, I think the primary reason for that, and you can maybe weigh in on this too, is I think when people do longer stuff, they, they feel like they have less of a margin for error, and so they want more help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I kind of feel like that's the reason why, I, as a coach, I end up working more with marathoners and Ironmen participants ironman competitors but anyway um uh, by right well that and there's the the fear too of if i do mess up i'm gonna be out here a lot longer than yeah totally 5k so so i mean if 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 listeners if you disagree with me on that by all means drop us a line let me know but i think that's why i end up working with them but anyway the point being is that since i'm since one of the big things that that i'm working with people on be they long course triathletes half ironmans ironmans beyond that um, or uh, marathoners, one of, the, one of the big key adaptations that has to take place via their training is being able to run and continue to run and maintain your form and even run hard after when, when you're tired. Right. Um, and so I'm a big fan of post-strength runs. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of having somebody you know lift some weights um, and then go out and run some amount of time afterwards. It doesn't have to be super long. Usually most of the post-strength runs I prescribe are only about 25 to 45 minutes. Um, yeah, but, same. but, mm-hmm. but they, they, a lot of times they'll build in some quality there. Uh, they'll run faster since you, you tend to run a little bit more efficiently when you're faster, you know, and, uh, at the very least you'll have some, 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 some sort of strides in there or something like that. Um, now if you're simply trying to build your absolute max power, 
some of your strength gains are going to be compromised by running afterwards. Um, and not totally sure the mechanism by which that works. Um, but, but if you're looking to increase your total absolute max bench press or your max squat, running afterwards or doing uh, endurance a- athletics immediately following that is going to compromise that a little bit. Um, somehow the brain chemistry or whatever that, that, that needs to happen gets compromised by your running a little bit. To me, the trade-off is worth it to say, but yeah, we're working on this other thing. We're working while you're tired. Now, um, I'd be interested if you agree with me here. Um, the, the, I think sort of the ideal situation, and this is what I would do if I was a pro, um, and this is not what I do. This is not what Georgia Athlete does, and I might have one athlete who's doing this right now. <laughs> right. Um, but is to have one of the traditional strength sessions. And so one of what we talked about, on a hard day, six hours later, go lift weights, right? Not long, 30, 45 minutes. And then another post-strength, uh, another, another session where you combine your endurance activity and your strength into a single session. And so they have two sessions a week, one of which in which you combine it like that, the other is, is a standalone strength session. Um, that is what I, I, I think is the ideal, based upon all the different research and all the different things we've talked about over the course of the last little while here. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that's actually that's what I've done the last several years. Hey! Um, <laughs> uh, you know, because, like I said, you're, get, you're getting two sides of the same coin. You're kind, and even though you're getting most of the same benefits if you're doing pre- and post-run, it, it's nice to get have one pre-run strength session and then one post-run strength session. Mm-hmm. Now, part of it is figuring out logistically what that's right. going to look like. Now, right. I'll tell you, I have the uh, benefit of working in an office building that has a gym. Yeah. I just I have to take the elevator or the stairs down, you know, a few flights. Boom, mm-hmm. there's my gym. Show my ID. There we go. So that's a little different than if you're someone who, you know, in Atlanta is having to fight traffic to get to a gym, and so you may right. be thinking, look, I can't do this after work, right? Um, or I can only do it after work. Or I can only do it in the morning or a certain time, right? But to me, it really helps. Generally, what I do is I, you know, have that that post track workout lifting session, mm-hmm. you know, on Tuesdays, and then on Fridays when it's like more of a longer tempo day, mm-hmm. that's when I'll kind of flip. I'll flip the order. Mm-hmm. Right on. And and we should say, and, and as we've said a couple of times, there is some disagreement about the win. I think it's I think pure running coaches, particularly ones who have been around for a little while, who maybe have grudgingly accepted that that yes weight training is worthwhile and it does make you more durable and economical and blah, 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 blah. The ones who have kind of grudgingly accepted that, they still will very much say, in no way should your run, your, your weightlifting interfere with your running. And yeah. so, so, so what we're talking about here, going for a run, like tying yourself out with weights and then going for a run, there are some people who, whose blogs I read, who I appreciate, whose podcasts I listen to, that, that would vehemently disagree with us on that. Yeah, um, but I submit that they're they're training short distance runners, and yeah. and, and that, that running while fatigued and holding it together while fatigued is is not a primary goal of 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 the runners that they're they're coaching. Right, and real quick, I just realized I misspoke. I generally do the 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 post run lifting after a track s- session or mm-hmm. a tempo run, mm-hmm. and then if you're going to lift bef- before running, then then that run afterwards needs to be an easy run. It needs to be twenty five to forty minutes, just like you said. Of just getting out there and trying to maintain form, right? And that's right. and that also is a run where I don't want to look at a watch. Mm. You're just trying, you know, you're almost just focusing on the form. Mm. And if you try to push it and kind of kill yourself to hit a certain time, that's when th- things start to get a more psychologically taxing mm. to the point where, you know, you're, you're almost beating your head against the wall. They're mm. trying to do something that you can't do 
Um, and also, too, I just think it, the point of that post-run, or that, excuse me, that post-strength run, is to try to maintain your form and to practice running fatigued. And see, and, and for, my, for my long course triathletes, particularly ones who are training for a half Ironman, where you do have to kind of run hard, try and push it a little bit, mm-hmm. I do have them push it a little bit. Now, now that being said, we know they're not going to be able to hit the same splits and same times. And I'm also, I, I, will, I will prescribe a much more ambitious workout as a, as a standalone workout than I do as a post-strength workout. But right. I do have them try and run hard a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's usually like nine minutes total of hard running. Or so it's like limited that. hard yeah, running. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I do have them run a little bit harder and mm-hmm. because I, I think that particularly for triathletes, triathletes sometimes have to get off the bike and run kind of hard. Right. Um, and, and so they have, to, they have to be able to run hard while we're all really fatigued. Um, and so, so I do have them do that a little bit. Um, um, one last kind of word to say, and we're, we're, we're getting to the end here, and so we're kind of starting to throw in all the stuff that we need to make sure that we remember. Um, it is important to keep in mind too um, that that you should you should still have easy days in all of your training. Yep. Um, and so you should always have some sort of easy day. So so if you can only lift on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you have hard days on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, so your schedule is hard day, weight day, hard day, weight day, hard day. That's not a good schedule. Mm-hmm. There's not enough recovery built into that schedule. You probably need to take off one of those eight days, or better yet, maybe take off one of those one or two of of those of those hard days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you still need to have some days in your week which are entirely devoted to zone two recovery style work, um, and that goes for for runners, for triathletes, for swimmers, for cyclists, for anybody who's doing endurance work. Yeah, and that's important physiologically and also psychologically. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're busy adults. We all need days where we have, we can take a bit more of a mental break and, and take a breath. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what last words you got for us, Patrick? Uh, so just to kind of rehash a few points we've already made. So we talked about, you know, strength training. It should not replace running or get in the way of running. You know, it is a secondary activity, but it is a secondary activity that has critical enhancement properties if done correctly, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I think, it, it, I believe it was Meb that they asked, well, why are you so disciplined with, with the details, right? And the, the little, small stuff. The little things, yeah. yeah, the small stuff. And he said, well, I realize the little stuff is not so little. Right. Um, and, and the same with strength training. Uh, the other thing I would say is one of the best things you can do, and this is true for, for, for you know, adult athletes that are trying to, you know, juggle, you know, all kinds of different responsibilities is to find a routine that works, mm-hmm. right? And then I like to keep it simple. You know, one thing I, I hear constantly is, you know, someone will, will read something online or they'll hear about what their buddy's doing at CrossFit or Orange Theory. And they're like, well, do I need to be doing this, this, and that? The key to a good strength, one of the keys to a good strength training program is consistency. Find something you can do week in and week out and be consistent in, in execution. You don't need to focus on doing a one-legged Bavarian deadlift like do the basics you know focus on being consistent with it and you know that's where you'll really see your gains and and in that regard and that's a nice way to kind of tie it up here at the end in that regard maybe strength training isn't all that different from endurance training after all there we go uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. We appreciate you being here with us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Uh, we will see you next time.
And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Make sure that you reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Reach out to our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, at itlcoaching.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And don't forget about our other sponsor, Casey the Travel Planner. You can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash MEV. You can drop her an email at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. Or just go to her website, caseytravelplanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.